Hello, and welcome to Breaking Protocol. I am your host, Bob Sadowick. Today, my guest is Clayton Tucker, the Democratic candidate for Texas State Senate seat, District 24. A fifth-generation Texan, he grew up learning what it meant to extend your hand to those in need. His grandfather once told him something he will never forget. Neighbors help neighbors. When Clayton asked his grandfather why they were going to help fight a neighbor's fire. That basic yet exceptional advice helped set Clayton Tucker's moral compass and has guided him to pursue initiatives that benefit his fellow man and help create a better world for everyone. Growing up influenced by rural values, he was a Boy Scout and achieved the rank of Eagle Scout. Clayton graduated from Southwestern University, where he studied international politics with a minor in Mandarin. After college, Clayton moved to Shanghai and worked for the National Science Foundation and the University of Pittsburgh as an environmental researcher in China. He also spent several years in Taiwan, where he studied Mandarin at National Chanqi University, ultimately becoming a teacher. Upon returning to the United States, Clayton returned to his family ranch in Lampasas, Texas, where he met Texas Agricultural Commissioner Jim Hightower and became a statewide coordinator for Mr. Hightower's nonprofit, lobbying the Texas government to provide health care for all Texans. In fact, Mr. Tucker is most likely the most knowledgeable person running for elective office in Texas when it comes to understanding health care as a human right and the benefit of implementing health care for all Texans. It's a pleasure to have you join me today, Clayton, and welcome to the show. Happy to be here. And thank you so much, Bob, for all that you do. And we really appreciate uh, everything. I mean, we're all working for the common cause here and just to make sure everyone has the ability to live a healthy and dignified life. That is not something that's common among a lot of politicians these days. Unfortunately, but hey, that's what we're here to change. That's what we're here to change. Let's talk a little bit, Clayton, about your background and allow our listeners an opportunity to get to know you from you know, from your perspective, you were born and raised in Texas, you uh, come from a ranching family, and yet you set your sights early on in pursuing a global education. I mean, that's a huge leap that very few young people make after high school. How has that impacted your pursuit to serve the public? Well, it made me see how things can be working. So let me tell you the story. And this is what the story that really got me involved in healthcare organizing. So I was living in Taiwan and Taiwan has a universal system. If you're Taiwanese, you get it automatically. If you are not Taiwanese, you have to be working or studying. And it's a full universal system, as I said. And between that two week period when I wasn't working and I wasn't studying, I got strep throat or some kind of bacterial infection. I really tried to tough it out. I was not able to tough it out. So I go to an ATM, I pull the money because I know I'm uninsured. I go to, I just pick a random clinic and I walk in. And within two minutes, they see me. They gave me seven pills to take twice a day for four days. And I kid y'all not, I spent more time at the reception counter ex- trying to explain to them that I am uninsured. It was a completely foreign concept. I didn't even know the Chinese word for uninsured. Uh, so they were like, oh, you lost your health insurance card. I'm like, no, I didn't lose it. Oh, you forgot it. No, I didn't forget it. I am literally uninsured. And they finally said, okay, well, I guess, I guess you have to pay for this. And it cost me a grand total of five American dollars. So just seeing that and just seeing how other 
countries work because we are, you know, the only developed nation in the world that doesn't have some type of universal healthcare system. I mean, a lot, a lot of them are different. You know, Singapore's model is very different than Germany's model, which is very different than Canada's model and the UK's model. And, you know, each model has their strengths and weaknesses. So after seeing that, that's, and seeing how it can work and how that really does benefit a lot of folks, came back to the United States, I guess started causing trouble, according to what some people might say. Good trouble. You're causing oh, good yeah. trouble. There you go. There you go. You know, it's, uh, we're going to get into universal healthcare a little deeper because you do have quite a knowledge base when it comes to universal healthcare. I've had the opportunity to hear you speak more specifically on how it impacts Texans and specifically how it impacts your district. But tell us a little more of how a young man from a ranching family pursues an interest in Mandarin and ends up in China. Well, like, um, like most things guys do, it all started with, in my case, a girl. Uh, she <laughs> was interested in Mandarin. So I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll see what's up. Yeah. Why not? Mandarin and, sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> why, why do, why do most guys do anything? It's yeah. just, who knows? <laughs> uh, usually there's a reason. So, and, and it didn't work out between us, but, and you know, I really ended up liking the Chinese language. Um, one interesting thing your listeners might be find fascinating to learn is that, so I very likely have um, a, some form of dyslexia because reading and writing was very hard for me. Still kind of is, uh, like elementary schools and special education the entire time. I think I only got out of it around eighth grade and I contribute that to music, but that's a topic, that's an entire podcast of, in of itself. Reading Chinese uses a different pathway in the brain that is not affected by dyslexia. So dyslexic folks and dyslexic kids are actually easier to read Chinese. So when I started learning Chinese, I found it actually really easy to learn, easier than English in some ways. I just kind of fell into it and then just had an opportunity to study water with the National Science Foundation. I just jumped on the opportunity and then figured to go to Taiwan and study Mandarin full-time, want to become a translator, then I realized economic automation would probably make that job go away in the next five to 10 years. So probably not worth the investment. The long short of it is, is for, it started because of a girl, didn't work out, but hey, it ended up here. So I, I can't complain. And you came back to the U.S. from Taiwan, what year? Late 2015. It was, it was the start of the presidential primary. And I was just hearing the candidates talking about things that, you know, the, some of the developed world had, you know, I was a teacher, I was a kindergarten teacher in Taiwan, I had 15 boys, five girls and pure mayhem. And <laughs> there they do this really weird thing. I, I think it's called paying teachers extremely well. I just, I just got, frankly, to be honest with you, I just got mad that, you know, that they're doing that there, but they're, we're not doing it here. And there's no excuse why we can't. When there's a will, there's a way. And, and you I'm, know, there's nothing wrong with, with learning uh, from experiences and then applying those experiences to the benefit of our own people. I think that's a I think that's a concept that gets lost on a lot of American politicians, and mm -hmm. and I I would encourage them to to uh, open their eyes a bit when it comes to that. You know, let's talk a little bit about the environment, and I consider you to be a new generation politician. And what I mean by that is I was speaking uh, a couple of days ago 
with a young woman, 28 years old, who just got herself elected to the Illinois State House. And she will be sworn in in January. Interestingly enough about that, I was doing a little research, and there's only about 40-some-odd candidates and or elected officials in the United States, states, legislatures, that are under the age of 30. And I call them the new generation of legislators. You would find yourself in that category of being a new generation leader. And one of the things that's important to your generation of leaders is the environment. Mm -hmm. Texas has an incredible amount of sun, an incredible amount of wind, and there is no doubt that your district is highly impacted by the environment. Farmers and ranchers, rural communities, very impacted. How, explain to us how environmental policy could benefit and what you would do as a legislator to implement those initiatives. Let's talk a little bit about environmental initiatives. I feel that your generation of legislators and your generation in particular has a f level of concern relating to the environment than the general population. There is no doubt that the environment is highly impactful in rural communities like District 24. And Texas has a ton of sun and a ton of wind. And these communities are being adversely impacted every day and not benefiting from these natural resources of sun and wind that we have available. If you are elected from District 24 to the State House, what initiatives would you implement and put forth to benefit the citizens, specifically the farmers and ranchers of District 24? You know, there's a there's that old saying that money may not grow on trees, but I would like to add that with the right equipment, it does come down from the sun and flow in the wind. You know, <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I was driving up to Abilene just maybe a week or two ago, and I was just passing farm after farm after farm. And I was just thinking, you know, farmers are they're in the backbone of our society, the backbone of all civilization. And that's that's not a you know, I think I think we all understand that. That's not I'm not saying anything uh, out there with that comment. But what I was thinking is, you know, they create all the food and all the resources we need. Well, why shouldn't they also be creating the energy that we need? Why not create a program where literally every farm and every ranch, if they so choose, has the ability to put wind farms and to put solar panels on their land? Because, I mean, a lot, look, a lot of the land here in this part of the district is very alkaline. It's very rocky. It's not really that good for corn or soy or cotton. You, you get that here and there in bits and parts, but it's mostly ranch land, a lot of goats. Okay, well, you know, goats can easily graze around wind turbines. Goats, depending on how the solar facility is created, can potentially graze around solar or you just put beehives there. So I was just thinking, you know, we should create some kind of program where every single farmer and rancher, again, if they so choose, have the ability to install solar panels and wind turbines on their land, and then they can use the energy themselves. They could sell it back to the grid. Because I think that's going to be one of the key parts to really re reinvigorating our rural economy, because those are going to be good paying jobs. And, you know, we, every time we think of like a, you know, if you think of like an old Western like of Texas, 
like some old movie. You have like the old cre- creaky winter wind uh, mill thing turning in the wind. So we're already known for our wind. So it's just, you know, update that image to a big wind turbine and make the, make all the power that we and the, hopefully even the rest of the United States needs. How much investment do you think it would take to break even when it comes to solar and wind energy, specifically used here in Texas? The real answer to that question is kind of break even over what time period. Okay. Um, because, I mean, if we're talking within a matter of like one to two years, I don't know if we're going to break even with one to two years. And I think this is where government really has to step in. Because, you know, if you a private business, you have to make a return on investment pretty quick. You know, you can't really wait one or two years for your investment return. Some, in some cases, yes, you can, but not usually. But governments, and we see this with the, uh, the electricity, like, you know, we're thinking about the Rural Electrification Act. Originally, electric companies didn't want to put electric lines into rural areas because it might take 20 years before that investment returns. And, you know, co- private companies can't really do that. They don't really have the, the bandwidth to do that. Governments, I mean, if it takes 20, 50 years to return on investment, that's fine. That's kind of what the government's role in an ideal way should be. So um, if we are installing wind and solar, I mean, it might take 10 years, it might take 20 years on a money-wise uh, to return its investment. So how much money do, how much investment do we need? Well, I know Senate District 24 has $2.8 billion so far invested. I think that's around, is around 2.8 billion. I mean, we can do a lot more. There's a lot of wind and there's a lot of sun out here. So I say, uh, go big or go home. We Texans are, uh, we, we everything's bigger in Texas. We ain't known for tiny things or tiny windmills <laughs> or wind farms. <laughs> everything's bigger in Texas, that's for sure, as, as are campaigns. Campaigns seem to be bigger in Texas as well. Let's talk a minute about the current environment that Texans are dealing with. The coronavirus is at a place of infection and death rates in our state that truly is adversely impacting people on a personal level. And one of the biggest impactful things that's happening at the moment, discussions that's taking place at the moment, is schools opening. And some schools, my understanding, have already opened. There's still a debate going on around how many schools are going to open. Not opening schools creates an extraordinary hardship on working parents, and specifically on one-parent households, which we have a significant amount of one-parent households throughout the state. Should the voters put their faith in you and elect you to the state Senate in November? And if they do that, what policies can we anticipate you supporting to help parents overcome some of these hurdles that the pandemic has placed in front of them? Well, I certainly hope to um, you know, earn the support and the you know, is, I mean, yeah, just to earn the support of the residents of Texas 24. I mean, I mean, I do believe that this has something that has to be earned. And I do think my history has generally shown where I stay what, you know, I say what I think and I say what I believe. So actually one, you know, one of the ways I do that is I do a lot of, you know, phone calling and phone banking. That's not going to surprise anyone. But I always use my personal cell when I do so. And I tell folks, I'm like, this is my personal cell save it. If something comes up and I need to know about, call me, text me. And you know, it might take me a little bit of time to respond because get a lot of messages that way. But still, I want to be held accountable 
and where people can connect with me. As far as school reopenings, ooh, well, the only solution was to uh, not be in this mess in the first place. That's the only easy solution. Unfortunately, it's a little late for that. Yeah, I think we're behind the eight ball on that one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a lot too little, a lot too late, unfortunately. I understand, you know, the the huge impact this is having on on families, on folks, on working families. I also understand the impact it's having on children with special needs and with children with food inse- who come from food insecure households where the schools provided their meals. And also the kids who live in a household where it is physically unsafe for them and where school was their safe zone. So I understand and I really feel for all of that because all, all of those kids, I can, I can only imagine how hard that must be. And I recognize that a lot of folks are going to fall be going to be falling behind, but at the same time, you can't exactly catch up if you're not living anymore. Let's just put it that way. So what I would like to see is first off, we have to recognize that there is no real such thing as social distancing in our school system as it is, and you're not going to get kids to wear a mask all the time. I mean, we're already seeing that. I'm a former kindergarten teacher. You cannot keep a mask on a kid. It doesn't matter whether they're five or they're 15. It yeah. ain't happening. Yeah. You might be able to do it for five minutes, but the moment you turn your back. They're still babies at that age in, in reality. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we, we all know how teenagers can be because if one decides to take off the mask, that's, I mean, that's all it's going to take. And then you have, you know, the teachers and their families and the janitorial staff and their families and then students and their families. So, I mean, this could really uh, spread like wildfire very, very fast. And this also the simple fact of the matter is that the state government has very, very systematically been defunding schools. Uh, they have very systematically been going after public schools. And that includes my opponent, um, Don Buckingham, who is very pro-charter school and has, you know, they've cut school funding. Now, some solutions that I would like to see. Well, first off, we need everyone who can teach your kids from home, who can do virtual learning, who can do in-home learning. We need to make sure that they're fully empowered to do so. So that includes um, better internet, rural broadband, and the urban broadband, and make sure kids have the computers and the laptops and the supplies they need at home and the food they need. For the cases where in-person learning has to be necessary, um, whether that's due to the work or due to the child has special needs, um, special educational needs, you know, we can, uh, one idea I heard that I really like is where schools can temporarily take over other buildings like expo centers, uh, you know, big kind of big open air facilities. So I know expo centers would be there, enclosed sports, gymnasiums or rec centers would be there. So that's something I would like to see. So basically long and short of it is we just need to make sure our public schools have a lot more resources. But we also, you know, there's some folks that say, um, well, you know, just have to do like, have extra discipline on the schools. Well, that could very much exacerbate the school to prison pipeline, which I do fear the COVID-19 crisis will significantly hurt the school to prison pipeline, not like in dismantling the school to prison pipeline, but it will make it worse, particularly as kids lose more access to mental health services as their mental health needs are rising. You know, those are some creative ideas, I have to say, Clayton. And you know, you mentioned your opponent, Dr. Don Buckingham, you know, who is a physician, and she recently stated in an interview just a few days ago, and I quote, we know how to modulate the spread of the virus. She was speaking specifically 
to Texas and to getting the economy open. Your opponent, I am assuming, is approaching the virus spread from a scientific approach, her being a physician. Are you convinced that Governor Abbott's administration has implemented appropriate protocols to either slow the spread or contain the spread of the coronavirus? Yeah, I, I, I don't know if there's a, um, a language issue with this, but I have to call BS. Uh, let's just put it that way. Because if you know we know how to modulate, then why do we have half a million cases in the state of Texas? Like, don't, don't, mm-hmm. like, I don't believe in that. I don't, I, those are just words to me. Those are cheap political words. As again, we have half a million cases and cases aren't going down. They're plateauing right now at around 8,000 new cases, but even that's not the real number. So I, I have to call baloney on all of that. I think my opponent is just repeating whatever Abbott and Dan Patrick and Trump for that matter are saying. What I think of Abbott's response, well, I think, I mean, they espouse local control, but they don't evidently believe in local control for schools. It's a lot little, lot too little, a lot too late. And I don't really think the, what I'm, what I refer to as the ostrich head in the sand, uh, not paying attention to reality methods is going to work out very well for us. You know, it's interesting. Our healthcare costs continue to rise. I can say that from personal experience. I, I personally pay for private healthcare insurance out of my own pocket. It's extraordinarily expensive. And unless you are among the employed, which less and less folks are employed these days, you have to pay for private healthcare. Or like when you were in Taiwan, you don't have healthcare for, you know, you only had it for that short period of time. <clears throat> that combined with something that's impacting your district specifically in recent years is the closing of rural hospitals. In fact, you've had a significant amount of rural hospitals close in your district. I believe there are four counties in your district Mm -hmm. that don't even have a county hospital. And you, on the other hand, have been a huge advocate Medicaid expansion in the state of Texas. You lobbied for it. You believe in it. And why is it that the Abbott administration, and for that matter, many Republicans, are so opposed to Medicaid expansion? And two, explain to Texans how they would highly benefit. And I say that because I believe they would highly benefit from Medicaid expansion. Well, those are very excellent questions. To answer your first question, why literally every single Republican at the state level is against Medicaid expansion is for one very simple reason, and that is because President Obama passed it. Uh, if Trump passed it, if Bush passed it, if Romney passed it, they we would not hear a peep from them. They would be all for it. But because it was passed by Obama, they are very against it. And now they might make up a reason. They might stumble and like fumble their words a little bit. They, they may mumble something. But I guarantee you that it's all a lie. Uh, there is absolutely positively no rational reason why we would not expand Medicaid. Now, let me tell you why. There are, and these are, this is pre-COVID numbers, mind you. So the numbers are worse now. There are, there were 3.7 million uninsured Texans with uh, 700, over 700,000 uninsured children in the state of Texas alone. Pre-COVID. Pre-COVID. Those numbers are worse now. And that's hurting folks, that is hurting businesses. And there's actually been more and more studies about this so let's say if we expand Medicaid, which, by the way, would cost us nothing because we've, we've literally paid for it. It is literally our money sitting 
essentially in a federal piggy bank just waiting for us uh, to accept it. So we've already paid for it, but would say, you know, that's, that argument is not um, convincing to you for whatever, for whatever reason, you know, you're, but you're wondering, how's it going to affect me? Like I have health insurance. How's it going to affect me? Well, let, let me tell you, not only are we losing out around two point two and a half billion dollars every single year or more, it's actually causing our property taxes to rise. So when the state refu- refuses to accept Medicaid expansion, they're forcing counties to pay for indigent healthcare services. Using Bell County as an example, 6% of Bell County's money, which is raised through property taxes, goes to indigent healthcare services. If we expanded Medicaid, property taxes, and at least Bell County would drop by 6%. Or they have 6% more money to spend on, I don't know, road schools and other infrastructure. Point being, it is literally costing every single one of us. It's also costing us jobs. Uh, I believe that Texas would add around 300,000 new jobs every single year if we expand, if we closed a coverage gap. Medicaid expansion would definitely do, which the reason there, that is the case is because, again, when people have more money, they spend more. When people spend more, more people can be hired. Uh, we're seeing that. I think COVID-19 is proving that point, especially right now. It will save counties a lot of money. It will reopen a lot of hospitals. So 23 rural hospitals have closed. Uh, Four of my counties don't have a hospital. And at least a couple of my counties' hospitals are on the verge of closing. So if people had Medicaid, then they could start using a hospital more, brings more money into hospitals. That helps them out. Also, what I think we really need to do, and this would be a separate program from Medicaid, you know, if we're just sticking to the topic of rural hospitals, is either find a way to where we can reopen all of these closed rural hospitals, which is going to be a little bit of a challenge. And we're probably going to need the federal government's help on it. The state of Texas can technically do it by itself, but ideally the federal government would do it. But another program that the state could do is ensuring every single rural county has at least one medevac helicopter. Every single county, at least one. Which, you know, for San Saba and Mills County, which are two of my very rural counties, you know, like maybe 15,000 folks there, uh, you know, having one medevac chapter might, you know, might hold them over. It might hold them over till they have a, at least a very sizable souped up clinic to uh, keep them going. Though I would, pref- the idealist in me wants a hospital in every single county. The realist says, well, let's go at least with, you know, helicopters, medevac copters per county until we get to that point. In your district, District 24, you do have a large area footprint that is very rural. And mm-hmm. you've got some, you've got some pretty good size population centers, but for the most part, it's a very, very, very rural place. You are now operating a campaign where you can't get in your truck and drive across the county going from farm to farm, shaking hands, you know, with your fellow ranchers. How are you reaching these people? Well, it certainly has been a challenge. I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah, I've always subscribed to what I call the FDR LBJ model politics, which is shake every single hand. Uh, right. Regardless what party affiliation they are, just find them, shake them, and just, you know, learn the person's name. That was their style of politics, and it worked out fairly well for them, I would say, both former presidents of the United States. And that was going to be our method, uh, just going around shaking all hands. Obviously, we can't do that right now. So we are trying to find a way to shake hands virtually. So we do a lot of um, things even similar to this, a lot of podcasts, a lot of interviews. 
Uh, we do a lot of Facebook Live where I try to interact with folks. Um, a lot of social media. I've never been a big believer in social media. Don't really have a choice right now. We do a lot of phone banking. We've sent out a lot of text messages. We're getting prepped to send out a bunch of mailers. So when I call someone, let me kind of use this example. This is kind of a, a fun example. And actually, your your uh, listeners will be the very first folks who uh, hear this story. You know, when I was I was talking to a gentleman, we'll call him uh, Mr. Brown of Comanche County. Comanche is a really rural county in the district. And I was asking him, like, oh, you know, can I send you some information? And then can you tell all your friends and neighbors? Is everyone in your contacts? You know, is everyone you know? You know, we're having to do this little old school where we're relying on people to connect to their own networks and, uh, you know, spread the message. He's like, oh, yeah, sure. Oh, and by the way, do you know a Mr. Um, Edward? I think, yeah, Mr. Edwards of Land Passes. I'm like, oh, you know, my mind, I'm, I'm not quite certain. He's like, oh, and this Mr. Brown was in his 80s and same with um, Mr. Edwards. Like, oh, you know, we're like longtime friends. We're friends since, you know, grade school or, or whatnot. And I lost his phone number and I haven't been able to find it. And I haven't contact. I haven't seen him in years. I heard from him in years. I just want to know how he is. So I'm like, okay, well, let me, let me see what we can do. So we called around. We found uh, Mr. Edwards, thankfully still, still alive and kicking. And we end up getting those two reconnected. And that's kind of like this, that's the style of politics uh, that we're really implementing this real neighbor to neighbor, really connecting on folks, but then also relying on folks to help us connect with their networks as well. So not only are you a professional campaigner at this stage of the game, you're reconnecting, reconnecting old friends from uh, decades ago. That's quite impressive. Uh, let me ask you this. The last time a Democrat won your district was in 1994. What, what can you provide our listeners that will convince them that your positions are providing an opportunity for you to unseat the incumbent Republican that you're running against? Well, several things. Uh, first off, I mean, it's the, the state of Texas is changing. You know, demographics are changing. People are waking up. And I think Beto in 2018 really hit this point pretty well, that Texas is in red, it is in blue, it is not voting. And there's even another candidate, uh, Julie Oliver for Congress, Texas 25, running a really great race, might, might I add. And our districts really overlap pretty significantly. And they did a poll for her district, and they found Biden was one point shy and she was two points shy, which two cycles ago, that was a 20 point difference. So basically, we're closing a 20 point gap in this area. And this, again, the changing demographics, we have some really great candidates up and down the ballot. I think this is one of the first years, if not the first year in a long time, where nearly every single seat, at least on a state level and federal level is filled. I don't think there's, I think there's only, I can only think of one, maybe two empty seats. And even there's some county commissioners and like, um, I think is a uh, Blanco County if I remember, it has a county commissioner the first time in a real long time. So we're working with a lot of folks like that. And we are, you know, we have um, joint team meetups, you know, it's something kind of unique in the campaign world. You know, I mean, we're working really hard. We're, we're connecting with folks. Um, we're building a very good, good grassroots uh, coalition and grassroots army. And one of the biggest ones this district has seen quite a while. I mean, I don't think I, I'm pretty certain, particularly with how Don has been responding to COVID with how they've been responding to um, healthcare, voting on Medicaid expansion, and how they've been responding on schools, and is their lack of support for public schools that the ground is shifting, and I don't think they're as solid as they think. 
because basically if we get every if we get folks out the vote well then there you go you know it's interesting i grew up in eastern oklahoma mm-hmm. and i know texans don't like oklahomans to beat them to the punch on anything but they recently voted Medicaid expansion. So, mm-hmm. you know, that I don't know if that's going to be a political uh, feather in your cap, but, you know, we might have to let these Texans know uh, they're lagging behind when it comes to when it comes to health care. You know, before we close up here, uh, is there anything that you'd like to leave our listeners with that I haven't had a chance to cover today with you? You know, I always think of the story of this young guy who was my age, the age of 29, the ripe old age of 29 years old, who decided he's going to run in a Senate district, state Senate one, that was very similar to this, partly urban, but mostly rural. And it was red, it was red as red can be. But he decided he was going to go around and meet as many folks as he could. And what he would always tell folks is basically the same, that he believed in protecting their environmental heritage that he was going to make sure that he does all he can to bring good jobs. And that also he would fight corruption. And that was a big part that, you know, the system is corrupt and we have to clean it out. And that was the very first election FDR ever won. And that's the kind of campaign we're running. And we are on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we are on Instagram, on all the things. And yeah, we're really, we def, if y'all like what you're hearing, become one of our virtual volunteers, become one of our newest grassroots donors. And together, they won't see what, they won't know what hit them. This has been quite a conversation, Clayton, and I, and I really do appreciate your time today. As you heard, uh, if you'd like to find out more information about Clayton Tucker and his campaign, you can visit his website at tuckerfortexas.com. You can find that information in the Uh, biography of this podcast. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. Please click and subscribe for notification of our future podcast. And if you haven't had an opportunity to read my book, Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy, it is available at your favorite online retailer and can be downloaded to your Kindle, tablet, or smartphone. Thank you once again and many blessings.